Welcome to our 11th session. So we're getting close to the end here. I hope it hasn't dragged on for most of you, but for me it's gone by really fast. I hope, hope you've experienced the same thing. And today we'll complete the exegetical portion and we'll get back to some of the hermeneutical consideration. But before we get started, uh, Mark, do you want to open for us in a word of prayer? All right, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of our praise and all glory and honor and our worship. We thank you and praise you for this class uh, to teach us to study your word so that we can rightly divide the word of truth. So, Father, we pray for focus of each and every student. We pray for Dr. Ray's uh, presentation of the material. Uh, Father, we also want to pray for our nation this evening as we're uh, involved in elections. Father, we just pray that you will raise up men and women who look to you for guidance and direction as they exercise authority over us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we have a very important area that we want to take a look at. Application. So part of our science and art of interpretation, this is a very important part that we don't want to leave out. Otherwise, all we've done is just an academic exercise. So this is the last stage of the exegesis portion. And I'm... Confident we'll get done today and then devote all of our time to uh, going back to some of the issues in hermeneutics that uh, we interrupted, like special hermeneutics and also history and uh, different approaches other than the approach that we are, we are doing here in this course. So that's kind of the broad outline of where we're heading. We've looked at observation, and the main thing we've stressed there is just seeing what is in the text. What do I see when I open up the Bible and look at a passage? What is there? Not necessarily what it means yet, but just simply what has the author presented in terms of Words, sentences, paragraphs, all the way down to, in the English at least, punctuation. So we spent lots of time in observation, taking notice, but more than just seeing, we want to perceive what's in the text, sorting out that that is more important than what is lesser important. So we... Spend more time with areas that are more difficult or perhaps more difficult to uh, eventually interpret. So that's observation. We spent a bulk of our time looking at interpretation. This text takes it to the next stage. What does it mean? What is the meaning of the words? What is the meaning of sentences? What is the meaning of phrases? What is the meaning of perhaps a theological concept that may be developed in this passage? So, interpretation. 
and we're bottom line seeking what the author willed to communicate or his willed meaning, what he intended us to understand, what he was trying to say to that original audience. Now, at this point, it's very, very important that we distinguish, at least, interpretation from application. Now, along the way, I've been stressing that when you deal with observation and interpretation, you go back and forth. You you come up with a preliminary interpretation, and then you go back, make more observations. In some cases, you may do special studies, like a word study, or you may need to do some grammatical analysis. Uh, so you're kind of combining observation with interpretation going back and forth. But we want to make a sharp distinction between the observation interpretation stage and the applicational stage. Now, you might come up with an application early on, but even it is tentative. Now, the reason I want to stress this is because this is an issue in hermeneutics. It's also a problem in the life of everyday Christians. In fact, most Christians jump into the passage immediately, which is okay, and immediately attempt to draw applications. And we should do that, and that's good. But if it short circuits the interpretive process, then we can come up with a misapplication. So I make a definite distinction between the applicational stage and the preceding interpretive and observational stage. Now, some hermeneutics mix the two as well, or some hermeneutics textbooks and some writers of hermeneutics. But I think it's important to make a definite distinction. It's a mistake, I think, to inject application into the interpretation. And that's what sometimes uh, some writers do and some interpreters do as well. And what I mean by that is interpretation and observation, what we are attempting to do, that's the stage where we attempt to see what the author intended in the time frame that he's writing. And we take into account the audience that he's writing to. So how did they understand that passage? And as part of that, you might even come across certain things that he intended for that original audience to apply as well. So there might be some application there. But in general, you're separating the two. There are two, two different stages. Once you understand how that passage was intended by the original author in that original context, whether it be first century, time of Moses, time of Isaiah, time of David, or whatever, now you take it the next stage, and that's application. You take it to the stage of, now how is it applicable in the 21st century? in our circumstance, our situation. 
So I like to kind of stress that at the very beginning of uh, this aspect of the hermeneutical process. And what we're essentially doing is we're not injecting a meaning in terms of how it uh, may apply to us, but what we're attempting to do is separate what it meant to the original author, and then now I can see or I'm in a better position to be able to apply it in my situation, whether it's personal or in terms of the people I have contact with. We'll talk some more about that later. So, application is basically seeing how the passage works for us, or what what the Holy Spirit intends for us to do with that passage. Now that I understand it, now I can take it that next step. So, What is the essence of application? The essence of it is we're seeking to allow the scriptures to transform us, allowing the scriptures to speak to us in terms of our present situation. It has an impact on our heart, whereas interpretation and observation are primarily, not exclusively, but primarily intellectual activities, if you will. But now we're thinking in terms of life change. So that's some of the essence of what we're looking for. So when it speaks of being wise unto salvation in uh, uh, 2 Timothy, it's using that word salvation in this ongoing life transformation sense. So just as that Second Timothy passage indicates, 3.16 and 17, 16 tells us that Scripture is inspired, and because of inspiration, now we can take the understanding of the passage and apply it in our situation. Inspiration means that God superintended the original authors such that they wrote down exactly what God intended, what the Holy Spirit intended, what he revealed to them. God controlled the whole process down to the writing and the final output that we have in Scripture. But because it's inspired, the Holy Spirit selected these truths because they would have a broader audience than simply that initial first century or Mosaic or Jeremiah time frame audience, that it would have application throughout uh, not only church age, but even prior cultures as well. So, inspiration, 2 Timothy 3.16, but the passage goes on that it's profitable. That's the application aspect. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. In other words, it can deal with all of the things that we encounter in life. And that's what application is all about. Now, this is important, and it should not be minimized or it should not be overlooked. It's a little bit like, just reminds me of a, 
of a, a residence that was near where I lived, just around the corner, actually, about a block and a half away from where I live right now. And since I ride a bike everywhere, I was, you know, I ride by, I used to ride by that house all the time. And it was curious because there was a lot of activity, a lot of construction. Actually, it was a remodel. It was a totally remodeled. They took out all the windows, all the doors, everything, put on an addition, uh, a new pitched roof. And close to its completion, I don't know what happened, but for some reason, they never went into the last stage. They never completed it. I don't know if they ran out of money or what the story was, but that house sat there, and I saw it empty, and it sat there for years. I don't remember, at least a decade, with no one occupying it. And then eventually, obviously, I guess they got funding or whatever, but they completed it, and shortly after, a family moved in. But in between that time, that house was was vacant, and some of the windows were broken, and some of the uh, outside was damaged. Uh, it was just kind of neglected. But anyway, the point I'm making here is that's like what we can do with Bible study if all we do is interpret accurately and precisely and never apply it. It never has its intended purpose from God's perspective in terms of our lives itself. And our tendency is to spend a lot of time in the interpretive stage, and that's good, but we need to take it to the next stage and think in terms of application, because that's the intended purpose, not only of the Holy Spirit, but of all of Scripture itself. So it's very important. We've been talking also in terms of the analogy of the scientific method to the exegetical process. And I'll say it again, but the scientific method came out of those early scientists' Bible study and their hermeneutics, their Bible study methods. And they made observations on the biblical text, and they took those observations and and utilize them in interpreting the text, and they assume that if God revealed himself in the natural realm, as Romans 1 says, or Psalm 19.1 tells us, then you can take observations in the natural realm and uh, discern something of what God is trying to reveal through the natural realm. So they make observations, then they come to some generalizations or some conclusions. In science, it's called the hypotheses. In uh, exegesis, we call that interpretation. At this stage, it's preliminary. And then we follow it up with further observations, or if need be, the third stage, verification. This is the testing stage. Uh, somebody's got their mic on. If you can turn it off, it might be helpful. There we go. So the verification stage in science is the stage where you formulate a way to disprove the hypotheses or falsify it. It's another way of describing that. And or substantiate it. 
And if you can do that and see how you have done one or the other, then you have confidence that the observation is more accurate. In exegesis, we want to substantiate the conclusions that we've come to, the interpretations that we have come to, and we talked a little bit about that at the end of our session last week. The main area of substantiation is the areas of of commentaries, but if you have friends or a pastor or someone that you can trust that's a good interpreter, you can... Uh, compare what you have come up with, what they have come up with, and that will give you some substantiation as well. And we're at the stage of utilizing those conclusions. In science, that's what engineers do. They take the principles of science, and in getting an engineering degree, it takes a lot of science study, and you take lots of courses to learn basic principles of science. Now you utilize those in coming up with a design, and once you've formulated the design, then it's ready to be constructed. That's part of the utilization. In exegesis, we call that application. Taking the conclusions that we've come up to concerning a biblical passage, and now we apply them in life situations. And we won't get into the next portion of the utilization, uh, exposition, that's a different course. So we'll complete the exegetical process at application. In science, an engineer submits his drawings to a contractor so that he can construct whatever was designed. In exegesis, we... Communicate that application or the the end product of our exegesis to a live audience, whether it be just an individual in discipleship or a whole congregation of a megachurch that some of you, I'm sure, will pastor in the future. So application is nothing more than obeying the word. And it's possible to simply, on a very elementary basis, get into a biblical text and find applications, but you want to first understand the passage before you can actually obey it. And it's possible to come up with misapplications. And that's why we want to do this lecture, is to avoid that. Another reason why, well, another aspect of what we're talking about here, when we're talking about application, there's two phases of this exegetical process. The first phase is the intellectual part. We call that the study of the text or the exegeting of the text where we're attempting to master the word. So it's a process of mastering the word where we're obediently doing what the uh, passage encourages, handling accurately the word of truth. The second phase, or the second stage, is this application stage, and kind of using a play on words here, letting the study of the word is mastering the word, 
in our understanding. When it comes to application, we're letting the Word master ourselves, or the Word mastering me. And that's kind of the end product of our exegetical process. Having an impact, having a transformation effect on us, and not stopping at the intellectual stage. Sterrett says the Bible has spiritual dimensions that can be grasped only when the will responds to what God says. Not simply when the mind analyzes the language. So that's a good description of application. Allowing the will to be affected. The will, or you might even say the heart. So it's a endeavor of the, the heart. Luther says, referring to the Bible, the Bible is not merely to be repeated or known, but to be lived and felt. So Luther includes even an emotional aspect to uh, application. Another writer, John Walton, says, interpreting the Bible is one of the most important issues facing the Christian today. It lies behind what we believe, how we live, how we get on together, and what we have to offer the world. Now, he uses the word interpreting, but he's using it in a broader sense in terms of it having an impact as well. So, a very, very important area. Part of the reason it's important is because of the nature of the spiritual walk. We're in a battle. In many ways, we're blind spiritually, so we need the insight, but not just the knowledge, not just the understanding, but we need the knowledge that moves us to action to uh, the area of transformation. And I've already mentioned this is the whole purpose of Scripture, is, as we read in the Second Timothy passage, not only to teach us intellectually, but to reprove us or to point out areas that need changing, and then to correct us, and then to put us through discipline or training such that our lives reflect what God reveals in his word. So that's a little bit of a, well, one more thing. Uh, we also know that the scriptures are sufficient to meet our needs, but if we stop short of the applicational stage, then we're basically short-circuiting what the Holy Spirit desires in giving us scripture. So that's a little bit of uh, an introduction to application. Let's spend some time talking about the biblical basis. And what I'd like to do here is not only give you a biblical basis, but let's spend some time in one of the passages and do a little bit of a review, and then we'll move into what that passage is contributing in terms of this whole area of application. So, some of the scriptures relating very directly, let's look at it, first of all, from a, a negative perspective. 
What does faulty application look like? There's a great example in in the life of Jesus. Remember, Jesus experienced everything that we will experience, according to Hebrews. He was fully human and at the same time fully God. But Philippians 2 tells us that uh, Jesus emptied himself, not of his attributes, but I believe what that passage is teaching is he emptied himself of his access to his deity or the attributes of deity. He limited his intellect in that in some occasions he even says that... uh, Only the Father knows certain things, not even the Son. In that passage, I'm referring to the Second Coming, when he's responding in the Olivet Discourse, explaining details of the Second Coming. He says that he does not know. Now, in his humanity, that's a limitation that uh, Philippians is speaking of. But he also limited his... uh, uh, um, Uh, what do you call uh, omnipotence is the word I'm trying to think of here in that uh, he could have healed anyone at any time on every occasion had he so chosen in fact he could have changed lots of circumstances not just uh, situations requiring healing but all of the miracles of Christ were very limited for particular purposes on particular occasions but not everyone received healing and not everyone saw the benefit of of a miracle. So he limited a display of that omnipotent power. So he experienced everything that we experience, including all of the hardships of life. And particularly in Matthew chapter 4, we have the record of his particular temptation before the beginning of his ministry. But in that passage, it gives us an interesting little exchange between the devil and Christ himself, beginning in verse 5. Let's look at the second temptation, because I want to point out what's at the heart of this whole area of hermeneutics in this passage. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, first class condition, I believe, in other words, assuming that you are, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and we have a very precise quote out of Psalm 91, and Psalm says, He will give his angels charge concerning you that he is God, and on your hands they will bear you up, lest or on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, if you go back and study that psalm, you'll you'll find out that that's a messianic psalm. Uh, Satan doesn't misquote it. He doesn't uh, distort it in any way. And even in verse 7, Jesus doesn't challenge his interpretation or his quotation. But he redirects, and the reason he redirects verse 7 is because this is a faulty application. 
It's faulty, at least in its timing, and probably many other aspects as well. So Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, so he counters it with a quotation out of Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's probably further confirmation that this is a faulty application. So, the problem is not with the interpretation of the text. The problem is in probably the application in that passage, at least. Another passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30. And let me read verses 15 and 16. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. And in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. One of the stresses there, and by the way, this is part of the covenant relating to the Mosaic covenant, probably the land portion of the covenant, and a central element of it is obedience. In other words, walking in a particular way, Obeying the commandments or keeping the commandments, that's application. So there's a direct application that we can make to some of the passages, not only of the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. In this context, it's directed at the nation of Israel. This was God's design for them. So this is a central Old Testament passage relating to application for the nation of Israel. We in the 21st century can take that same passage and we can apply it as well. And we'll talk about how to apply a passage like that. Thirdly, and let's turn, if you haven't turned to it, I'd like to take James chapter 1 and look at it a little bit in detail, not overly detailed, but uh, bringing out not only the responsibility that we have by way of this commandment. Now, this is the New Testament kind of counterpart, you might say, to some of these passages like Deuteronomy. This applies more directly to the church age and to believers in the church age because it's written to believers. So it has a more direct application to you and I as well. So this one is an easy passage to apply. But let's also use it in terms of reviewing some of the things that we've talked about in this course, particularly some of the principles relating to exegesis. So let me give you a little pre-preliminary look at verses 19 through 27, and we'll look at those passages in, in a little bit more detail. And what I'm going to give you is kind of the product of some exegesis on this passage. So let me put it within an outline, and then we'll get into the passage itself. Like most letters, this book has an introduction. This one is very short, only probably verse 1. 
So I take the first 18 verses as an introduction in some way to the whole book, where we have a direct introduction, verse 1. And I think James introduces the whole book by immediately jumping into the issue of trials. And through verses 1 through 18, I think that whole passage is something of an introduction to the whole book. And then he's going to expand upon that beginning in verse 19. But he gives a response immediately. In other words, the focus there is application right off the bat. Unlike what Paul does, Paul usually has a doctrinal section uh, where he lays out things that we can be thankful for, etc. James jumps right in to an application, assuming that the audience is going to experience trials or is in the midst of trials. So we have a little bit of an introduction. And then I think he gets into the body, beginning in verse 19, and I see most of the book, apart from the last part, which is more of a conclusion, as how do we respond in the midst of these trials? So you might describe that whole subdivision there, or division rather, the responsibility, and you might even include in the midst of trials or in trials, just to kind of abbreviate it. I see verses 19 and 20 as the essence of it or a summary of it. Remember, he's using that principle where he's going to summarize the whole book. And verses 19 through 20, you could take it as a summary of the whole book. And in that, he says, this you know, my beloved brethren. And by the way, you should note that. I'm going to kind of stress that later on as well. He's speaking to believers. In fact, in uh, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Verse 2, consider all joy, my brethren. So he's speaking to believers. He has a believing audience. I think this is crucial because of several difficult passages, like in chapter 2, but I'm going to make a point later on of a little phrase that we have in this passage that we're going to look at here as well. So, verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You could uh, conceivably outline this second major division using those three phrases. And in fact, I'm going to take them, and you'll see the first part of the outline as I progress here. Then he says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So he gives a reason why we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I'm going to ask you to make some observations when we get into the text, but I'm going to, ahead of time, kind of give you this first or second major subdivision, and I take it right out of verse 19, let everyone be quick to hear or swift to hear, and beginning in verse 21, I think that runs through chapter chapter 2, verse 26. And then you could look at the next part, 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, be slow to speak. But we won't get that far. And then you can see the third part in the latter part of the book. So, be swift to hear. Now, I've divided that into three major portions, or three paragraphs, you might say. Some of them you might divide into smaller portions, smaller paragraphs, but at least three paragraphs will make up chapter 121 through 226. So, what is he getting at when he's talking about being swift to hear? I think it begins in verse 21, so let's read it. And I'd like for you to make some observations. And where do we start? Does anyone want to remind us? What's the first thing that we want to isolate as we begin to analyze the sentences? Uh, Dependent and independent clauses. So we're looking for subjects and verbs. That's the second and third thing, but you're on the right track. First Good. of all, you want to... Go ahead. Yes. And what I've got on the screen here, this isn't the whole paragraph, as you can see the three dots at the end there, but the we have uh, the first two verses, 21 and 22. How many sentences do we have there? Two. All right. And the first one ends where? At the end of verse 21. Very good. And then we have a second sentence. Obviously, we have two. We have a period at the end of it. So we have those are the two first two sentences. And you might notice that in my outline, I'm going to summarize those. And those are going to be the subpoints under this idea of being swift to hear. Uh, they're going to be a mark major portion in my outline here. Some of them I'm going to combine, but you're going to see how I follow uh, as we talked about this last last week. So now let's identify what is the first independent clause. Now it may be the only independent clause, but at least let's look for one independent clause. Anyone identify that? Let me read it. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humi- there's a comma, in humility, so the translators might be helping you here. In humility, receive the word implanted, comma, which is able to save your souls. What's the independent clause? In humility, receive the word implanted. Very good. In humility, receive the word implanted. Now, that's the independent clause. And the reason for that, it has a subject. Now, don't get thrown off by in humility. That just kind of modifies um, the subject and or the verb. But you have a subject that is understood in this case. Uh, you could insert you. In humility, you would be the subject, understood. In Greek, it would be part of the verb. But English doesn't do that. But the verb is receive. 
and then we have a direct object. Receive the word, and then we have a descriptive word, or, yeah, descriptive word, modifying word here. And the reason the first part is not an independent clause is because it's a subordinate clause. Well, no, it's not a clause. In fact, can anybody identify what it is? There's a verbal idea in there, but it's not a verb. It has a different idea. Now, therefore, is more transitional from that verse 20. Therefore, he's following up, basically, that 19 and 20. So he's starting off, therefore, what is putting aside... Is that an adverbial clause? No, it's not a clause. No. It's not a clause, but an adverbial something or another. It's actually called a participle. Okay. Yeah, when you have an ing on a word, generally, not always, but sometimes it's a participle. So it gives us kind of uh, the manner by which we are to receive something in humility also is a little bit in terms of receiving in the in a manner of humility but or maybe a preliminary putting aside all and then we have two things here filthiness and all or let's see all and then we have that remains of wickedness um that possibly could be a subordinate clause putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Then we have the main clause. Then we have another subordinate clause, which, that's a subordinating conjunction, which, and it serves as a subject, which is, or is able, maybe both of those serve as the verb, to save your souls. What is to save your souls? To save, at least. Uh, That's an infinitive. Very good. Both of you got it. So we have a participle in there. We have an infinitive. We have a subordinate clause. And obviously you have to have an independent clause. At least at least one subordinate clause and maybe two in there. Very good. So the essence of the first sentence here is to receive the word implanted, this whole idea, with things that we want to precede it with. Uh, we need before we can receive it. We need to clear some obstacles there. So, uh, in my outline here, in the be swift to hear, I'm going to summarize this first part, this first paragraph. So, this is a the main idea of the first paragraph: hearing. I'm jumping ahead here, involves doing. And you'll see this when we develop further. So that's verse 21 through 27. Um, At this stage, you may not have seen that because we only looked at the first verse, verse 21. But hearing involves doing. So what it means to be swift to hear means that uh, we need to be hearing, but at the same time, we need to be doing certain things. And verses 21 through 25, I group those sentences together. We have the performing of the word. And then I summarize verse 21 as preparation 
for the performing of the word, which is the first part of the hearing involves doing. And hopefully as we move further, you'll see how all of these parts fit together. So that's the beginning of our outline. And we could take that even further, breaking it down, but I'm just giving the broad strokes just by way of reminder. So let's do this again with the second sentence. And I give you the independent clause, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. That's the whole first independent clause. There's that idea of doing the word or the performing of the word. And then we have a subordinate clause. Prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers. And then we have that subordinate clause modifying those who are merely hearers who delude themselves. Okay. So I can break that down and we'll come back to it. But let's look at some other sentences. Who wants to identify the next sentence? Let me read it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, semicolon, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is, period. So the next sentence involves 23 and 24, and then 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, comma, missed some of the other commas, This man will be blessed in what he does, period. So we have two more sentences. So we've got four sentences so far. And I've grouped all those together. You'll you'll see the logic in a moment and see why I grouped four sentences. But I'm going to isolate each of those sentences and summarize them. The first sentence we summarized as preparation for the performing of the word. In fact, I summarized all of that as the performance of the word. So let's identify now the main clause or clauses of these two sentences. Anyone want to make a stab of it? It's not... The first one is, he is like the man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. Uh, you got part of it, but you went too far. You you included a subordinate clause with it. Okay. But that's good. He is like a man. That's yeah. the independent clause. I, I, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's going to expand on who this man is. He's a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. That's a subordinate clause. And that's very good because you skipped over for if, and that's the clue. That's the key word there that makes it subordinate. It's a conditional clause. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, that's a subordinate clause. It tells us something about this man, uh, but it doesn't end with a period. It's a it's a stop. It's a full stop. You could make it into a sentence, but the uh, translators put a semicolon there, so it goes on. 
and we might look for a second independent clause. Anyone see one in there? Um, I think it's he has immediately forgotten. Very good. Very good, because the for is a subordinating conjunction for once he has looked at himself and gone away, that's a subordinate clause. The independent clause he has immediately forgotten, and then now what introduces, describing what this is that's forgotten, what kind of person he was, that's a subordinate clause. Very good. So there's two independent clauses. And what did we come up with? One, two, three dependent clauses in there. So this is a compound complex sentence. But now we've isolated some of the main parts as well. So this is going to help us to understand what's being said here. How about verse 25? The but one looks like it might start an independent clause, but we have who looks intently at the perfect law, that's subordinate. And then the law of liberty is, this is an example of apposition. In other words, he's telling us this perfect law, it's the law of liberty. Who looks intently, and then here's the second part of the subordinate clause and abides by it. So we haven't found it yet. Not having, that's probably a participle, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Still haven't found it yet, have we? Maybe it doesn't have one. What do you think? I think it has one. I think it's, this man will be blessed. Very good. Very good. That's it. This man will be blessed. So you have to go all the way to the end of the sentence to find the independent clause. Well, here are the independent clauses in these two sentences. He is like a man. He immediately for, he has immediately forgotten something. And there's an alternative that starts off, but one. In fact, you might say, but one, and it continues, this one man will be blessed. You could even include the but one in there in the independent clause if you wanted to. Otherwise, it's kind of dangling out there. Okay? So he's talking about kind of a contrast between two people, two characters. Uh, they're distinguished by different things. One is a uh, hearer of the word, and the other one is a not so, uh, he's a forgetful hearer, uh, not, or not having become a forgetful hearer. Uh, that's the alternative. So he's contrasting this man who's grasping certain things by hearing, and keep in mind, as you interpret this passage in the first century, most believers didn't have access to a Bible of their own. They, If they were Jewish, they would hear the word in the synagogue, and if they were believers, they would hear 
the word expounded or read in a church service. So hearing is an important element here, but it assumes a person that is exposed to God's word. Okay, so we've isolated these important parts uh, with the element of hearing the word, hearing or not hearing, or superficially hearing. And he said lots of things about that, but he's contrasting two kinds of people. So let's kind of put it together, and there's a lot of detail that we could expound upon, but what we're getting at is at the essence of it. So we have the introduction to the whole passage, short formal introduction with a um, response to trials part of the introduction. Now, the bulk of the book deals with responsibility in trials. We have the essence of that responsibility, 19 and 20. Be swift here, that goes to the end of chapter 2, and he's going to give us three parts to that. The first part is hearing involves doing. And we've already looked at verse 21, well, no, 21 to 25, we broke it into two parts, the performance of the word, or at least I've broken up, and there's three parts under it. Verse 21, I say preparation to be able to be a good hearer and doer of the word. And then the actual performance of it is described in 22, 23, and 24, the next two sentences, or the next sentence. And then in 25, we didn't, yeah, we got there. We have the product of the performing of the word. That man will be blessed, the blessing of that man. And you could expand that, the product of blessing, uh, the performance of doing, and not merely hearing. You can expand all these. The preparation of putting aside wickedness, etc. So you can expand those, but I try to capture it in one single word. So far, do you see how I got that? And you might also notice that Within the paragraph, 21 through 27, I alliterated. That's part of the choice of the words that I selected there, using P as my alliteration, to capture the essence of those sentences. Everybody see that? So I combined two sentences. I let one stand alone, verse 21, 22 through 24, I put together, because they go together. And then verse 25, I separated as a third element there. Okay. Now we have another part, 26 through 27. So let's take a look at it and let's do something similar there. And let me read it first. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man, uh-oh, did I press it twice there? Sorry about that. I gave it away. Uh, but, but deceives his own heart, comma, this man's religion is worthless, period. So there's one sentence, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our, uh, the sight of our God and Father is this, colon, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, 
and it keeps keep oneself unstained by the world, period. So we have two more sentences. So we're going to end up with six sentences in this paragraph. Two of them I put together. And let's see how these other two break out. And I kind of gave away the independent clause already, so let's just jump to it. Uh, the first part, if anyone, that's a, if is a conditional clause, so it's a subordinate clause. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that all goes together. That's all part of the subordinate clause, and it has three parts to it. The independent clause, this man's religion is worthless. Again, he waits to the very end to give you the independent clause. Now, he switches in verse 27, gives you the independent clause of beginning, and that's really the only clause. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, and our God and Father is this, and now he's going to tell us what that is. Everybody following so far? This is a good review. Yes. Now, this is just the beginning stages, and we're just doing the broad strokes, but I want you to see two things. Uh, not only what you do to start off, you break it down into at least clauses, and then you break it down even further than that. Um, and in this case, these sentences are short enough that we can identify them without diagramming them, but I would diagram them myself anyway, just to see how all of the other parts fit together. Okay? And the other thing I wanted you to see is right out of these independent clause, I, clauses, I come up with the, the main elements of the detailed outline of the exegetical outline. Now, in my notes, I would have a far more detailed outline. In other words, in verse 21, for example, I have a little a, and then under little a, I have a one within uh, complete parentheses and a two, then I have a B with a little parenthesis or half a parenthesis, and then I have three parts of it. Um, like under the, uh, let's see, let me track over here. Under the preparation, I have the removal of that that needs removal. And I've got the two things, the filthiness and the remains of wickedness. And then I have something to be received. Uh, this is preparation. You have to receive the word before you can perform it. So this is preparation. It's the receiving, the implanted word. And then I have the three parts. The manner of it is in humility. The object of it is this implanted word. That's what we receive. And then the effects are salvation of the soul. So more detail in the outline. And then the performance of it, I break it down into two major parts. The first sentence I have, in that's verse 22, we have the command to do the word. So we have the doing of the word, and then we have a description of the mere hearing, and then we have a description of what mere hearing looks like, it's delusion. So these are the three parts within that.
And then we have an illustration. Verses 23 and 24 is an illustration of what he just said in verse 22. Did you catch that? It's like somebody that's doing certain things. He lays out the situation. It's like someone who is hearing the word but is not doing it. And then the comparison is it's like that man who is simply here and not doer. And the likeness is that uh, it's somebody that just looks in a mirror and that looking is superficial. He leaves very quickly. And then I have a third part, verse 25. We have the expansion of the comparison where he expands it and you can break that one down into three parts as well. Okay. So let's continue in the outline. That's the performance of the word, verse 21 through 25. Now we have the practice of true righteousness. This kind of extends what we should do with the word. We should perform it, but it should go beyond and actually is an example of true righteousness, 26 and 27. And 21, or let's see, uh, 26, he gives, he gives a description of poor religion. I'm using alliteration here. And he talks about the man that thinks of himself as religious. That's little a there with parentheses, half parentheses. And what is that man, how does he practice? So I call that the practice of that man. Um, doesn't bridle his tongue. He deceives his heart. And uh, the result of that, or the reality of that, it's worthless religion. I could have titled it worthless religion, but I chose poor to kind of keep with the alliteration there. And then verse 27, here's pure religion. In fact, that's the word the text uses. It's pure and undefiled. So we have a description of it. And we have God is the one that is observing this pure religion. So I have three parts under it. And then he gives an example of the practice. The practice of true or pure religion. And he describes acts of love to orphans and widows. In other words, if you want a visual picture of what it looks like, here's an example or a couple of examples. And it also involves the holiness of oneself. It leaves us unstained by the world. You see how the outline comes out of the grammatical analysis, comes out mainly of the main clauses, and I include subordinate clauses in there. And you can uh, detail the outline even further from that. But, what's the main application, obviously? (laughs) That's what we're getting at. In other words, the whole emphasis of the passage is what? Who wants to summarize the main idea? To be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Very good, very good. 
Or what I have under B there, a capital B, I have one, hearing involves doing. Or in terms of our course, interpretation or exegesis involves application. So here you have the central passage, and here's your summary. Oh, yeah, well, here's another part. Uh, I was looking ahead on my slides here. Um, The second part begins in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and I'm expanding on being swift to hear. Now, hearing includes attitudes as well. So it involves doing outward acts or application, but now he's going to deal with attitudes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And the bottom line here is, be ye doers of the word. Who was that? Was that Mark or, is that you, Mark or Eric, that phrased it that way? So that's the main application, and this is the probably the central New Testament passage that gives us the biblical basis for application. But we see the same idea in the Sermon on the Mount, and I've got verses 24 through 27 there on the slide, that's the conclusion. That's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus has has taught concerning issues of the, the kingdom, talking about the blessedness of those that enter, those that are part of the kingdom, clear instructions. We have the Lord's Prayer in there. All kinds of guidance, but how does he close the Sermon on the Mount? And I get a part of it here, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears, and these are people that were sitting at his feet, he was expounding, he was teaching, he was giving a discourse, so they were hearing these words. Today we read and we expound or we exegete those words, therefore everyone who exegetes these words of mine, and what? Same thing that James is telling us, acts on them, or that's Jesus' way of talking about application. Maybe compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And if you read the next part of it, uh, when the storms of life come, when Issues enter in when I have to face reality. I'm not no longer in church, but I'm acting on what I've heard, but I'm going to be like a house on a rock, and it's going to stand. It's not going to be swept away by the storm. And he gives the alternative. If uh, one is a mere hearer and not one that acts on them, it's one that, that like a man that, builds a house on sand, and when the storms come, it'll be swept away. The foolish man. So, uh, Jesus, after he completed his sermon, his exposition, his teaching, and people were understanding the essence of what he was saying, he didn't want them to leave with simply a notebook full of notes. 
he wanted them to act on what he had just communicated. So that's application. And here's another passage that emphasizes application. So we have the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus does the same thing with the disciples on the last occasion that he had with them before the crucifixion. We have another discourse. We call it the Upper Room Discourse. And part of it, John 14, the early part of the Upper Room Discourse, verse 15, 21, and 24. Verse 20 or 15 says, if you love me, in other words, he's talked a lot about love, him leaving, their relationship, gave them somewhat of a outline of their future ministry, promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 25, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And one of the main commands he gave to them is this whole concept of love that they will be known for their love, but it begins with a love for him. And the only way we can love one another is by obeying what he has commanded. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So it's reiterated a few verses beyond verse 15, verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my father. So there's uh, incentive or motive. And I too will love him and show myself to him. He's already explained that he's going away. So he's going to in some way make his manifestation amongst them. Tremendous promise that we have here. And uh, 15, let's see, or, or verse 24, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. Uh, they belong to the Father who sent me. So we have the alternative in verse 24. And by the way, you might notice in that verse, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father. When he stresses the words, what is he stressing here? Remember we talked about this? Anybody remember we talked about inspiration and we believe in verbal inspiration? Here's one of the passages that uh, includes that concept. The very words that you hear are not my own. They are, they belong to the Father. So revelation comes in not just ideas, but down to to words. So this is the biblical basis. There's other passages, but these are some of the most clear passages. And some of the terms that are used, if you do word study on the Hebrew word yada, which is to know, or the Greek corresponding word ginosko, there are more than one Greek word for knowing. So we have two verbs, a Hebrew and a Greek verb. The yada, to know, has the idea of to know by experience. So also ginosko. It's more related to knowing and doing or knowing by experience. In fact, yada is used 
in that very, very intimate sense in the book of Genesis. It's yada when it refers to Adam knew his wife or it refers to others. They knew their wife. It's not a handshake. It's not, oh, good to know you. But it's describing actually the sexual act. In other words, very intimate knowledge, very intimate experience, you might even say. That's yada. Corresponding to that is ginosko. So the very words to know implicit within them has the idea of knowing by experience or knowing by doing. So that's your biblical basis for application. It's probably a good time to take a break. We looked at an introduction. I've give you, given you the biblical basis. We just completed that. And let's take a look next after we come back from a break of six, seven minutes, ten minutes. The particular principles, the major principles, dealing with application. Before we break, any questions? All that pretty clear? Not very difficult. This is pretty clear. Yeah, this is getting a lot easier, right? We've uh, basically handled all of the the difficult stuff in exegesis. Application is pretty straightforward. So the let's un- go ahead and take un- right. the, the, un- the understanding is easier than the doing. That's true, always. <laughs> yeah, the understanding is easy. The doing is is harder. Because we have hardens, hardened hearts. Okay, let's take a break. Well, last hour, we were looking at application. We're going to pick up where we left off. I gave you an introduction to the area of application, stressing the distinction between application and interpretation. And not that it's that difficult, and application doesn't always go wrong, but you want to make sure that you have appropriate applications. So we talked about an introduction, and we finished by looking at a biblical basis for application. And where we want to pick up next is what are the principles that deal with application, particular principles. So, number one, it might seem obvious, and in fact we've been stressing it, is application must be based on interpretation. And like I said, not too often does it go wrong, but there is the possibility if you've misunderstood a passage, you can sometimes misapply that passage. 
So it's important to make sure that we have the understanding of the passage in terms of its historical setting and its intent from the original author conveyed to that original audience. And then now we can take it another step and apply it. So when we speak of application, we draw the application from the interpretation. And we might illustrate it with this little graphic here. We've been stressing throughout that we're looking for one interpretation. In other words, that one meaning that that individual author intended. And in general, there is one interpretation. When it comes to application, application is much more flexible, you might say, or much more broad, in that conceivably you could come up with an infinite number of applications from that one individual passage that only has one interpretation. So applications can vary. Applications can come in different ways. And in fact, I'm not talking about applying to different people, but just in that way as well, applications can have an infinite number. But even personally, an application that pertains to us individually, sometimes you can come up with more than one from that same passage that you have exegeted. So application is more flexible. That's why I wanted to distinguish also because some people mix up interpretation from application and they might even say, well, a passage has lots of meanings. Well, if they're referring to applications, then you could almost say yes. But if they're referring to interpretation, then you have to emphatically say no, that a passage only has one meaning. So application is far more flexible in terms of the number of applications you can come up with from any given passage. And in fact, we should draw applications from every passage. In fact, it's conceivable to apply every and any passage in Scripture. And I've even said in the past that you can even draw applications from things like genealogies that seem to only include names or series of families that are included in the genealogy, but you can draw even applications from them. So one interpretation, an infinite number of applications. So interpretation is not exclusively, but primarily a mind activity or an intellectual activity whereas application deals with the will. God desires to affect our wills, and he can do it in a variety of ways from even the same individual passage. The same passage may have applications that pertain to our motives. You know, why do I do some, some things, or why do I do even the good things? That same passage can touch on our attitudes. 
what are the attitudes that I have in terms of whatever that passage is dealing with, uh, maybe an individual or a person or a relationship. And certainly it affects our speech. In other words, do I have to change the words that I use or um, even the harshness? There might be harshness in my general speech that I need to kind of tone down for whatever reason. And certainly, obviously, actions, things that we actually do. So the will and all of the aspects of the will are involved when we come to application. It involves change, and we've been stressing the need to not change God's message, but to be very careful in exegeting it, careful in understanding it, careful at deriving the intended author's meaning. But rather than attempting to make changes to the word, we should uh, constantly, when we're talking about application, let his message change us. That's the whole thrust of application. So, interpretation. Now, a starting point in finding not only appropriate but very good applications is to look at the passage because many passages contain applications built in. In other words, a commandment, for example, that's that's to be obeyed. That's That's direct application. Now, the first place to look is how was that initial audience to take that passage and how were they to interpret it? Now, it may be different in our circumstance. The command may be applicable in an isolated sense, or it may be broader and may be applicable on a more universal sense, like the Ten Commandments are pretty broad except for the one dealing with the Sabbath, which I think is more particular in terms of the nation of Israel. So that's the starting point. Is The starting point is in the interpretation itself. Looking in the passage, what did the author intend that original audience, what did he intend for them to do with whatever teaching he may have? Now, he may be developing... A doctrine, and then later in a later passage, he's going to draw an application based on the doctrine. But if you're in a passage that is more exhortational, then it's more easily transferable to applications in our culture right now. So, first principle is being mindful of the interpretation. Now, from that interpretation, we can draw out, even in passages that are not so direct, like commands, we can draw out what we would describe as timeless truths. Truths that go beyond that initial audience, that go even beyond that initial author, but truths that are more broad, more universal, that are behind the passage. And there are universal truths behind every passage of Scripture. So you look for those truths, and from those universal truths that are not bound by the first century or bound by the time of Jeremiah or whatever, 
those transcend time, and then from those truths, we can turn those truths into application. So, kind of the transition that I just mentioned, you evaluate the original application that was intended for the original author, and if it's more broad, if it's a timeless truth, then it's an easy transition to the time in which we're applying the passage, our own time frame. So evaluate how that original author would have taken it or uh, intended it and how that original audience would have taken it. Look for principles. The Bible is not a book, even though it's accused of a book of do's and don'ts. Yes, it does have commands. Yes, it does expect certain actions. But we have a lot of historical material. We have a lot of poetic material. We have prophetic material. We have all kinds of literature. But within all of that literature, there are principles that are being taught as well. Not necessarily directly, but every passage, even a genealogy, you can, you can develop principles from those passages. And that's what you want to look for because that is going to be your transition from the original audience to the 21st century. So look for the principles behind or underlying or the basis for what the author might be communicating in any given passage. So a timeless truth is the first step, if you will, to the application. Thirdly, determine what is normative, and what I mean by that, there might be even a very direct command, and let me use the Sabbath again, Uh, that was a direct command that was expected to be obeyed by not only the original audience, but succeeding generations for hundreds of years, but that was normative for Israel and not normative for a different age. We're living in a church age, and some things that would be normative for Israel would not be normative in our age. So you need to make that distinction and decide, is this normative for only this age, or does it transfer over to other time frames as well? The other nine commandments, besides the Sabbath commandment, You can find them normative in the New Testament and during the church age as well. In fact, they're even broad such that they have this timeless element even within themselves. It's never right to steal. It's never right to kill. So it transcends even the nation of Israel and goes even preceding Israel and are repeated for that reason in the New Testament. So those would be normative. But not all commands are of that nature. So, you need to determine what is normative for whatever period we're we're living in. So, a timeless truth. If, in fact, it's a timeless truth, and this is a way that you might test it out to see whether or not it's a timeless truth or not. It is true, obviously, to the original audience, because it's addressed to that audience. But secondly, it is true throughout history. 
it's true in any time frame, even before that original audience. So some of those truths that God gave, like Ten Commandments, or nine of them, uh, they were true before the giving of the law, before the nation of Israel. So at any time, and obviously after that time frame, and even today, and will be true in the future. So if it's true throughout history, that's the timeless truth. And obviously, certainly, if it's true today, then obviously it's a timeless truth. It transcends time. That's why we call it a timeless truth. So, uh, you want to recognize how God has set up different periods of time and take those passages within those time frames and Look for a principle behind either even a direct command, but within a narrative material, there are some principles that are operating there as well. An example of a principle, you can see that certain actions as a result of a narrative, let's say, let's say a narrative passage that is describing a certain Situation with different events transpiring and certain actions are taking place. The characters are doing evil things. They're identified as evil. And perhaps those same evil things, even though they're not in the form of a command, they're in the form of an example to be avoided. That would be an example of a timeless truth. I'm not to treat my neighbor in a bad way as the situation in this context is dealing with. Or you see bad actions between nations that are specific to that narrative, but those cumulative actions, hostility, for example, to another nation, a timeless truth in that, in that there's a truth that I should, on an individual basis, not be treating individuals on an evil basis as well. So we draw from even narrative material things that we can learn by way of example. So you have good examples and you have bad examples within uh, the description of the narrative. So, look for the timeless truths. That's going to be your stepping stone to application. And there is just a third principle. Now, you want to fit that truth to the contemporary situation. That's 20th century, 21st century. Our time frame. How does that timeless truth, how does it apply in my everyday situation right now? And like I said, if it's a timeless truth, then it transcends time and it's applicable here and now. So it deals with issues of not only relationships, but attitudes and uh, uh, motivation and issues that are not just actions themselves. So we can find the contemporary situation and uh, fit these timeless truths within the time frame in which we, we live we live in. Uh, just a few examples. When Jesus is instructing in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, go the extra mile. What does that mean? Well, you discern the meaning of what he's talking about in that context. He's exhort, exhorting those 
first century believers who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount, who lived in Gentile, most of their way of travel was by foot, walking, and people would walk miles in any given day, just doing their everyday business or whatever they were involved in. So, I think it's easy to see what he means by that is he's not just talking about a literal walking, but the timeless truth is put in the extra effort that is needed to deal with whatever particular situation is called for in that particular situation. And it might involve patience. It might involve uh, cutting people slack or whatever the case may be, but the timeless truth behind that statement goes the extra mile. Now we can take that and fit it into our contemporary situation. Another example from 1 Kings 17.6. Remember the experience of Elijah. He had fasted and he was famished and, and raven, a raven brought him some food. Well, that's in the narrative. Is that an example that is normative for all times? Well, it was not normative even in the time of Elijah. That was a very unusual situation. That was a supernatural situation where God provided for him. But the timeless truth is that God has promised, and you can find promises that God has promised to sustain his own. And in some cases, if he so desires, he can use a supernatural means. So we can be assured that if we are in need, that if we're trusting in him, he can provide for us. And that doesn't mean that we expect a miracle or we don't expect a literal raven to bring food, as was the case with Elijah. But the truth behind that is that God provides for his own. And if we are in a needy situation or a circumstance that requires that we distrust him, I think that's the application that we can apply thousands of years later in our contemporary situation. For those of you that are engineers or inclined to the sciences, let me put it in a mathematical formula, if you will. You have a timeless truth plus the contemporary situation, you put those together and that equals your application. So, timeless truths transferred to the 21st century now make up what we can do today uh, based on the passage itself. In fact, the application comes right out of it. So those are your particular principles, three. The first one being your application must be based on the interpretation. And you want to separate out the interpretation from the application. What is the interpretation in terms of the original audience? How were they to apply it? What did God intend for them? And then from there, you draw a timeless truth or a timeless principle. And then thirdly, you transfer it to our time frame. Fourthly, uh, and you can't, 
It's hard to go wrong with most applications because they are so flexible. But uh, there are some examples of where you can go wrong. So let's talk about some cautions here. Some of these I have observed in my interactions with people within different churches, uh, sometimes individuals that that I've encountered in in my ministry. It can be a problem. Here's a here's a live example of a situation that uh, I encountered in a church. In fact, it became a, a problem within the church, and that's why it had to be dealt with. But when we analyzed it, we realized what uh, this individual was doing in terms of other believers. The thing that uh, was happening here was this individual was making an application, the principle, rather than taking the principle and formulating an application. So, in other words, doing the reverse. And let me describe what was going on uh, and this was a relatively mature woman, rather godly, uh, rather outspoken, but that wasn't the issue. She was convinced that uh, women should be submissive to their husbands, keepers of the home. And as she studied uh, Titus 2.5, where it talks about women being keepers of the home, in her thinking that uh, a woman should not go out into the workforce and neglect the home, because if she did that in the opinion of this woman, that she would be violating this principle, being a keeper of the home. Well, what she did is she made that into the principle. Uh, Any woman that what, regardless of her circumstances, if she went into the workforce and had young children or even older children, teenagers, violating Titus 2.5. Well, what she did is she made the application into the principle rather than the principle allowing for different ways of application. And what she was doing is she was putting a lot of pressure on young women that didn't have husbands that had no means of support other than going out into the workforce and leaving the kid with a babysitter or daycare or whatever. But this was, this was their circumstance and they were doing the best they could, putting a lot of effort in caring for their children and caring for the home. But the way that they were applying it didn't match the way this other lady observed So she put a lot of guilt and condemnation on this woman to the point that some of these women started coming to the the elders of the church and uh, basically asking for help. And it was becoming such a problem that the elders had to sit down with the lady and explain what she was doing, that these women, you know, basically, um, even married women, their circumstance wasn't the same as hers. Her husband was making plenty of money and had no problem supporting them, whereas the other situations were not like that. But what she had done is turned the application into the principle rather than allowing for different ways that that same principle could be applied. And some of these young women that were in the workforce were 
doing the best they could, and they were doing a fairly decent job of keeping the home. But it wasn't exactly in the way the lady had uh, envisioned it. So that's an example of don't turn your application into the principle and then expect others to apply that principle in the same way that uh, maybe God has led you uh, to apply it. For the lady that was making the imposition, that was the application God gave for her. And it didn't necessarily transfer to others as well. So that leads into the other one. We need to be careful also in formulating applications that we not impose a legitimate application that is applicable to us. We need to be careful not to impose it on others. Recognizing that all of us are in different places spiritually, some more mature than others, obviously. And a more mature believer, God may be more demanding in terms of how he expects that more mature believer to apply a particular passage than he might be in terms of a new believer or a believer that is still struggling with other issues. So applications, we need to be careful when we deal with others that we not impose our applications on others. We need to come up with applications for other people, but we need to let them basically come up with their applications or be convinced that this is something that they need to implement in their life personally. So that's caution number two. Thirdly, deals with just simply the hardness of our heart. Our hearts are such that we resist application. Application is the hardest part of the whole exegetical process because uh, we are resistant to change. And if we're in the Word and we're studying it diligently and carefully, uh, we need to continually be thinking in terms of... uh, dealing with the hardness of our own personal heart. So that's a major obstacle to uh, application. And if you're involved with other people, it'll be a major obstacle in the whole process of discipleship. So it's going to call upon us, particularly those of us that minister to others, to, to be patient and sometimes tolerant, knowing when to confront, knowing knowing when to cut people slack, knowing that it takes time for people to change because of the hardness of heart. And sometimes we expect people to jump from their newness in Christ and their immaturity to where we are, those of us that have been believers for longer periods of time. So the Christian world sometimes can impose great pressures on younger believers that uh, can even be damaging to them. So, careful with that. Pressure from the flesh to do certain things that maybe that new believer is not ready for. Fourth, another problem is lack of insight. Here's the interpretation problem, lack of understanding of a passage. And if that's the case, then we have to go through the process of exegesis, of understanding what the passage teaches. And the more we understand the passage, the better position we'll be in to apply that 
particular passage. Here's another problem that some people encounter. It's not unusual after a relatively good or even a dynamic sermon that people will come up and compliment the the uh, teacher or preacher or pastor and and compliment them and say, oh, that touched my heart. And they go away thinking, oh, I felt, you know, I felt something inside of me. I felt this warmness or whatever. And it's nothing more than an emotional response. So we need to be careful in application not to mix up an emotional response with a real response. Did I just feel something? Did I just have a high emotion as a result of a dynamic message? Or am I really changing in terms of a heart response rather than simply an emotional response? So that's a caution as well. And not only in terms of our own personal experience, but as you do minister and you disciple others, as you observe them, that you might caution them that... um, Yes, you had an emotional response, but did you take it the next step? And was it a real response of the will in terms of the message? Similar to that, and we've been stressing this, is just simply an intellectual response. That's the exegetical process. In other words, oh, I got insight, I got understanding, I I know what the passage means now. Uh, that was such a good message. It was so clear. It was very insightful. Now I know what the passage teaches, but then we stop there. So that's the intellectual response that uh, lacks the applicational response. So these are the main areas of cautions. There's There's others as well. Um, just not spending enough time thinking about applying, spending more time in the understanding phase. You don't want to neglect that for sure, but not to the neglect of the applicational phase. And there's always the danger, you could include as another caution, to make sure that the passage you're applying is a legitimate application in terms of the overall scripture. So, that brings us to our fifth part of application, the areas. I've been mentioning some of them already, but let's make make them clear. Application begins first and foremost with myself. So how does this passage apply to me? And in proportion to the others, this should be not only the first and the primary, but probably the area that we spend the most time dealing with, searching our hearts, making sure that we do apply. And I've found as I've gone through the exegetical process, A lot of times, I'll come to a place where I just can't seem to get over the hump in terms of the understanding aspect. You know, I've done the word studies. I've 
done the grammatical analysis. I had diagrammed the sentences and looked up all the historical background and and for some reason it just doesn't seem to fit together. I'm having a hard time getting this outline to fit together. And oftentimes I'll notice that what I'm doing is I'm preparing for that Sunday morning teaching and I'm omitting and forgetting about the application and there's something in that passage that God wants me to think about and to apply. And on the occasions when I've come to that realization and think through, oh, okay, yeah, I am resisting this area or whatever, and I deal with it, then it's not unusual and, in fact, inevitable that now that passage begins to just really fall into place. So the beginning point of application is how does the passage apply to me? Then I extend it to the family. If you're a husband, you're responsible for that family, and your primary responsibility is spiritual. That doesn't mean that you dictate applications, but you do, in a creative way, apply the scripture to your family, and particularly to your wife. In other words, you're not over her as as her spiritual Holy Spirit, but in a constructive and in a gentle way you can apply passages to your wife and so also women to their husbands which is even a little bit more um, touchy I guess you could say and takes a little bit more tact and wisdom and care but we should be applying scripture to Members within the family, it's a little easier to apply to the the kids. You can do Bible study and draw out applications for for kids as well. Any given passage, you can come up with applications that apply to children or any age group, teenagers or whatever. Uh, This is an ongoing endeavor. And as your family is strengthened and consistently applying scripture, looking to the Lord, looking to scripture, now you're in a position, not only as an individual, but as a family, to have an impact on the church. And those that you have a ministry within the church, you can think of applications and stimulate them to spiritual growth. And it comes from application. Um, You might even have to exhort them to get into the word for themselves and help them to develop the skills to get into the the word itself. If you're a leader or you lead a group or you're discipling someone within the body of Christ, you're teaching them passages, but you're also encouraging them to apply the passages that you're teaching all the way to the pulpit, and one thing that Bible teachers should do, and I think most of those that you all are familiar with or under uh, do a decent job of coming up with ways that the church in general or individual within the church can apply the passages that they're teaching Sunday after Sunday. So depending on your position within the church, even just as a member, you're still accountable to God to look out for and to minister to those that you have opportunity to share. And a dynamic church that has growing families and has individuals that are applying scripture 
becomes a body that understands how to reach a lost world. Now, in reaching the world, our emphasis primarily is evangelism, but most passages, you can think of a timeless truth that maybe it's not directly dealing with evangelism, but has some broad way of applying to the unbeliever as as well. And all of us have some contact with the unbelieving world, some work for employers with lots of unbelievers. Others, we all have barbers, we all have um, people that we go to in terms of shopping and all the other issues that we have occasion to share God's word with with the emphasis of leading unbelievers to Christ. So those are the areas of application, and that gets us through the outline, basically, of what we wanted to cover on application. Any points of clarification or questions before we go on to the next area? And no answer or a, no a not none. Great. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Application's not difficult. There's also kind of a concluding area that we would call correlation, and it's part of the exegetical process. In fact, you can do this before application as well, but I'm going to edit here at the end. Uh, it has the idea of where does this particular passage fit in terms of the overall scripture. So what I mean by correlation, it's to set the passage that you're studying, that paragraph or that sentence, to set that passage in harmonious relation to the rest of scripture. You might even consider correlation part of the substantiation stage. In other words, you're you're running a check on the passage to make sure that it fits harmoniously with other passages. It's not in conflict, but in fact it fits within it, in no way contradicting another passage, the the meaning that you come up with at least, because passages in themselves do not contradict, we believe in that hermeneutical principle of no contradictions. But the understanding that we've come to, or the interpretation that we've come to, or the theology that we've developed from that passage, does it undermine or conflict with perhaps another passage somewhere else in the rest of Scripture? So correlation is set the passage in harmonious relation to the rest of Scripture. And as an example of that, if you remember, remember in that James passage? And let's turn back to James. There was a little phrase that I mentioned that I said that we'll come back to that could steer you in a wrong understanding of the passage. Remember that verse 21? Where it says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. 
Wow, what does that mean? And if you do a word study, in fact, if you look at that word to save there, it's the common word for salvation. It's sozo, which is the basic word that's translated salvation everywhere else. Well, if you're looking at this passage and is he talking about people coming to know Christ? Is that what he's talking about here? And as we exegeted, that was the reason I pointed out in verse 2, and you can see it consistently throughout the book. In chapter 1, verse 2, consider all joy, my brethren. He's addressing this to believers right off the bat. And in fact, this smaller paragraph there, verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren. And if you read through through the text consistently, it appears that he's writing to believers. Chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And then 2, 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world, etc., etc.? Verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith and has no works? And then he goes on and expands upon that. Chapter 3 begins, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Well, if he's addressing Christians, and we could go through the rest of the book, and you'll see consistently from the beginning to the end, He seems to be addressing the believers. So what is he talking about in verse 21? You might come to some wrong conclusions. And when you think through, uh, then you might have to come to the conclusion that what he's talking about here is not the way that people often think of when when a passage speaks of salvation. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the fact that if you do a word study, and maybe you didn't do a word study, and you came to a wrong conclusion in verse 21, is he talking about a Christian who has lost his salvation and needs to regain it? Well, that doesn't fit in with the rest of Scripture or other passages. Uh, Did he change from uh, verse 19, and now in verse 21 he's addressing an unbeliever? Well, that doesn't seem likely because everything seems to be directed at a believer. Well, if you do a word study, you're going to find out that there's four major ways that the word salvation, both the noun, sozo, and the Greek, soteria, are used in Scripture. In fact, I've said before, I believe every theological term in the Bible has an everyday kind of common Street usage, you might say. A non-theological sense, a usage in the culture. And I think this is one of them. Soteria or Sozo is one of those that just comes out of everyday living. And that's true in the New Testament and it's true in the Old Testament. 
in the Old Testament, you can find an abundance of passages that it speaks of being saved from an enemy that is invading your city. God brought salvation. Does that mean that the people bowed down and trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, or, or at least the coming of a Messiah? Well, it's not talking about personal salvation. It's talking about a salvation from an imminent danger. So that's the everyday usage. Or a salvation from a, a disease or an illness where you are delivered from it, if you will. But the word salvation can be used. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 27, in fact, let me read the passage to you. And in that passage, if you remember the circumstance, Paul is being transferred to Rome. And he's being transferred by ship. And the ship encounters a a storm. And the storm begins to become increasingly more severe, such that everyone is fearful that they're going to survive. And I can't remember where's the passage. But Paul uses sozo, or does he use the noun? I'll have to look at it here. Okay, verse 20, uh, starting verse 19. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. In other words, they're trying to lighten the, the boat so that it doesn't fall apart. Then verse 20, and since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. The word sozo is there. Now is it talking about salvation such that you spend eternity with God? Well, the context is very, very clear. It's salvation from dying in the storm. And then later on, Paul exhorts them. I'm trying to find that passage. Where he basically uses the same word. Okay, verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Sozo. He's not talking in this passage. He's not saying, stay in the boat so that you can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. He wants them to stay in the boat because if they don't, they're going to die. So... That word is used in that everyday sense of salvation from some imminent danger, in this case, the danger of even death itself. Well, the word is used theologically in three different ways uh, as well. So the fourth being this literal everyday sense, and in terms of theology, I've got that on this next slide, there's a past tense sense of salvation In the book of Romans, Paul uses the word justification. He's talking about the salvation experience. In fact, he rarely uses the word sozo. He uses uh, the word that is translated 
justification related, uh, the word relates to righteousness. In fact, it has the same idea. The declaring of righteousness. The declaring of one to be righteous. Uh, so there's this past tense sense, that initial salvation, that salvation from hell, from the penalty of sin. We can call that salvation from penalty of sin. But there are also passages in the New Testament that speak of this future sense. And Paul uses a word that is translated glorification, where we will be saved from even the very presence of sin. So we call that salvation from the presence of sin. That's future. Peter uses that phrase as well. Uh, James uses that word as well. And if there's a past tense sense, another word for it is justification. And if there's a future tense sense, we could describe that as glorification. When we, we totally removed from these sinful bodies, then you would expect a present tense sense. Paul uses another word in the book of Romans to describe it. In fact, he uses these three words in the book of Romans. He calls that sanctification. This is a salvation from the power of sin. All of you have probably heard about these three senses. So when you get to the passage in James, and it's talking about receiving the word implanted, and it's describing the believer, it's not talking about justification, it's not talking about something in the future, it's talking about a present tense sanctification or a salvation from the ongoing presence of sin. So it has nothing to do with salvation in that normal, everyday, or that, not normal, that theological sense that we're used to. And by the way, in my word study of the word, both the noun and the verb, the words are used an equal number of times in this present tense sense as it is used in that past tense sense. And yet most believers, every time they see the word salvation, they think salvation from the penal- from hell, from the penalty of sin, from eternal damnation, from separation from God. And yet there's an equal number of passages that deal with this ongoing sense. The classic passage is that Philippians 2 passage where it says, work out your salvation. Well, do you work out your salvation in relationship to, to God initially? No, that's by, by grace, through faith, alone, apart from works. That's the whole message of the early chapters of the book of Romans. Well, how do you work out your salvation? Well, the sanctifying process, we do participate. We do uh, involve ourselves. We do have a working out aspect. Even though verse 13 goes on to tell us that it is God who works within us. But it's this salvation, and he uses the basic word there, work out your salvation, soteria, uh, in the Philippians passage, work out your salvation, but it's in that ongoing sanctifying sense. So that's how the word is used in James 1.21, 
and it fits perfectly in, con- in the context of dealing with not only a believer, but with the exhortations he's making here. It's the believer who wants to study the word and understand the word, but he must also do the word. So receiving the word is the first part of it. It's preparation for the performing of it. And when we receive it, it's part of this sanctifying process. So if I think through and correlate the James passage, I will see that uh, there's nothing inconsistent there. James is not talking about a works salvation where you do certain things. And he's not even addressing the passage to the unbeliever at all. He's addressing beloved brethren. So that's what I mean by correlation. So that's going to help me now put the James passage in its context. And if you go to chapter 2 when he talks about faith and works, you're going to do the same thing because he's not contradicting Paul when he talks about a justification by works. That's what James is going to say. And Paul is going to talk about a justification by faith and faith alone. Paul is talking about initial salvation, you might say. James is talking about a justification that involves the believer who already has been uh, saved by faith or by grace through faith alone, who has already received that initial justification, you might say. So that's what we mean by correlation. So correlation is to see scripture as a whole such that any individual passage fits in a harmonious relationship to other passages that maybe on the surface might not seem to correlate very well. In fact, may even seem to uh, contradict. So what you want to do with every passage that you study, you are actually developing a biblical theology. Passage by passage, you're building a biblical theology. And a good Bible teacher, as he works his way through a book, he will, for the congregation, develop a biblical theology such that now they're seeing how this passage contributes to maybe one particular area of theology. The passage in James, it makes a contribution to the doctrine of sanctification. It makes a contribution to the the doctrine of bibliology because it speaks in terms of the relationship to the word and the believer. And it even touches that verse 21 to an aspect of soteriology, even though the soteriology there is in view of a salvation that goes beyond that initial salvation. So you're developing a biblical theology in all of the passages. So when you write your your paper, you want to think of in terms of one of the aspects of what you want to present is what is this passage teaching in terms of any area of theology. What might it be developing or contributing? Now, it's not going to say everything about it, but it'll say some things about some 
some areas of theology. And as you work passage by passage, you will be developing a biblical theology. And along with that, or almost you might say very similar to that, you're developing a biblical worldview such that you're looking at everything from this biblical perspective, from a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is in antithesis to the worldview of the culture in which we live in. And you develop this biblical worldview passage by passage. And those of you that are taking the framework course, what you are receiving is uh, a good development of a biblical worldview where you're looking at the passage or the, the Bible as a whole and you're seeing how the different parts fit together to contribute to a biblical worldview. And you do that passage by passage. And in that course, you're, you're going through the major events of, of world history or of the Bible, particularly, I think this framework one is the Old Testament. But uh, Charlie Clough is giving you a biblical worldview, kind of a synthesis of that biblical worldview. And as we do this, we're going to see more and more how Christ is central in Scripture. And we'll begin to see him as we look at individual passages. So that's correlation. And that's the exegetical process. We began with observation. We took notice of what's in the text, what is there, using perception. We attempted to seek the author's intended meaning. That's interpretation. What did the author intend to communicate? Today, we looked at application and obeying the word. And we just completed looking at correlation. Where does it fit in with the rest of scripture? And we've determined meaning by giving attention to the laws of grammar, considering the facts of history, and everything was looked at within the framework of context. And this is the reason we describe this as the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. And hopefully I've given you plenty of exegetical tools to help you in determining meaning. We're not done today, but let me conclude this portion. This, this, well, I'm going to look at that other handout I gave you, but today we'll be concluding the uh, exegetical portion of the course. So just kind of a closing cartoon here. Husband and wife in the automobile. Apparently, he gave the sermon at a church, and the wife says, that was some sermon, honey. The man across the aisle from me was in tears. She didn't know it, but he tells her, that was my old hermeneutics teacher. So I'm encouraging you, please don't make me cry when I visit you in your 
church sometime. Any questions over any of that? Somebody left. Probably Barb. She goes to her Bible study. Anyway, that what I'd like to close with is that second sheet that I gave you. I gave you kind of a summary of the exegetical procedure. Everybody got that? Yes. Page two of what you sent us. Right. Yep. What I've, tried, what I've tried to do there is kind of put together the whole exegetical process on one sheet, kind of a handy reminder that you could keep handy and look at and remind you, and then you can go back if you need to look at some of the detail. But more just to give you kind of some guidance in terms of when you get into the passage until it kind of becomes more of a a habit or a process that is more familiar to you. So I've broken it down, basically summarizing everything that we've done in the last several weeks there. As you can see, Roman numeral number one, we have uh, preliminary exegetical observations. And just basically the, the detail there. Now, obviously, if you're going through a book, you won't do that in every paragraph, but at least you'll start off your exegesis of a book with that preliminary portion of it. And then after that, you'll spend most of your time within Roman numeral number two there. But the preliminary exegetical observations include a book study of the whole book. And uh, you're doing an overview of the entire book, reading it. Remember, coming up with the main idea of the whole book. Trying to come up with a broad outline of just the major divisions and subdivisions. And you might spend some time looking up in either the commentary that you'll be using or commentaries and read the introduction that gives you some historical background, gives you some of the cultural background, those sort of things. So you can do that. And you're making preliminary observations on the text that you're going to study. Now you're looking at the paragraph itself. And I've got looking for textual variants, mainly the notes there, if you're using only English. And I've got, uh, you might compare different translations of that one paragraph, see how they might differ or how might they might be the same. Later on, you might come back to that, do it again. If you're studying from the Greek text, you do a preliminary translation at this stage. And you want to study the context, the immediate context, the paragraphs before and after. And obviously, if you're working your way through the book, you'll know what you dealt with the week before. But in studying the passage, the the uh, uh, the subject passage, then make sure that you know what's coming after as well to see how your passage is going to flow to the next 
And any initial observations that you have on the paragraph? Formulate an initial main idea statement for the paragraph. In other words, do a broad picture of the whole paragraph, kind of an overview, like like the book study is an overview of the whole book. You want to do something similar to the paragraph that you're studying. Observe the atmosphere of the paragraph. You can do that early on. And then you'll spend the bulk of your time just exegeting through the passage, making, exege- make, making exegetical observations on the paragraph, on terms, grammatical structure, purpose, literary genre, any other observations, lots of observations, spend lots of time there. And then make some decisions or interpretations on the paragraph. Do any textual analysis. That's mainly for those that do Greek exegesis. Do a detailed grammatical analysis. I do that early. So I do that right off. Uh, I'll diagram, and I've mentioned that I do diagramming. If you choose to do mechanical layout, you can do that. Or at least do basic analysis. And after you've done that, you want to make some final grammatical decisions before you finish your study. Now, that probably is done towards the end there. Do any word studies, lexical analysis, that's word studies. Analyze the literary structure of the paragraph with its context. How does that paragraph fit in with the other paragraphs? Determine the literary genre, if it contributes to the meaning. Any historical cultural studies. Now you're coming to final decisions on any other issues. Put the passage back together. That's synthesis. Synthesize your work on the paragraph. Finalize a refined translation. That's if you are translating from the Greek or Hebrew. Validate your exegesis. There's your commentaries there by consulting commentaries and the or the exegesis of others. Formulate a detailed exegetical outline of the paragraph. Formulate a final main idea statement for the paragraph, either a sentence or a word even, or a few words, a phrase. And write an exegetical paper or formulate a set of notes recording the results of your exegesis. So we went through all of that in some detail, and now it's all on one sheet. And your final stage, application and correlation. Find life-changing applications from the paragraph. That includes for yourself, for those that you minister to, your family. And then we just completed correlation. Correlate the passage with the rest of Scripture. So you have the whole process there. Ray, thank you for putting that together. That's helpful. Well, hopefully it'll uh, give you a good summary or a handy checklist, at least. Well, we have a little bit of time. I think what I'm going to do is kind of give you any questions before we... Yeah. Um, what does it mean to make um, to make a final grammatical decision for each sentence? 
Well, remember, there's lots of options. You, you know, when you did your, if you did diagramming or even mechanical layout, there are different possibilities. I gave you that one example of all of those prepositional phrases. Uh, you might have observed, well, this, you know, maybe I could diagram it this way. Maybe I could diagram, you know, maybe this is the way it relates. But by the time you, you kind of read the commentaries and they say, oh, 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 it seems like this is probably the best option. Now you're just kind of finalizing it and, oh, okay, this is the way I see how it all fits in. So you're just kind of coming to your final conclusions before you go off and teach the course. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and that's, that's, true of, uh, that's true of not only grammatical, but all your decisions. Any other decisions as well. Aren't you, aren't you sort of making your final grammatical decision when you do the mechanical layout or diagram? Mm, not necessarily. A lot of them you are, but... Uh, some of them you still need to consult uh, uh, a commentary just to finalize things, to just to firm things up for yourself. Hey, Ray, I had a question about uh, seeing Christ in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Is that something? Is that something we should be just becoming aware of, or should we be more or less looking for? Uh, or searching? Little of both. Little of both. It's just kind of taking a kind of a, a step back. You know, you spent your time, you're looking at the, you're, you've diagrammed this sentence, you're looking at every little preposition, every every little word in there. This is kind of the opposite. You're You're stepping back, and now you're looking at the big picture. How does this passage now relate to these big things, uh, theology in general, the, a biblical worldview, uh, how does it relate to Christ? You're just taking a big picture look at things. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's very helpful. Thank you. That really uh, kind of nails it for me. Thank you. Great. Okay. Let's see, what else do we need to talk about? In writing your exegetical paper, you're going to put together most of what we talked about, at least the parts that deal with your own involvement. The only thing you'll exclude are writing or consulting commentaries. So when you write it, you can leave things a little tentative. In other words, you can leave, in other words, this is how, what I could come to the conclusion. Uh, these are some other options. Uh, you know, I'm not so sure right now, but you might even make a statement, uh, this is an area that I need to do further study on or consult a commentary to, to get more insight on. But at least you're, you're gone through the, the process and you're, uh, you're in a better place to be able to, uh, to better use, use those, uh, 
those commentaries. Now you know what you're looking for as well. And when you read the commentary, you'll also, you'll discover, oh, I didn't even notice that, you know, that sort of thing. You'll have that response. Um, but the more, the more you do it and the more often that you exegete a passage, the more often you'll be able to anticipate what the commentaries are going to deal with. And you'll be able to look specifically, how did, how did the commentary solve this problem? You know, I'm not so sure I've come up with the right answer here, so how did they deal with it? Now you know what to look for. And some commentaries you'll find out, hmm, they don't have any more insight than I did. <laughs> but that's, that's okay. Okay, uh, what we'll concentrate on, and let me just give you a brief introduction to it. Um, we're going to go back to hermeneutics. We've completed the exegetical portion of the course. So you have everything that you need to do that assignment number six, but also you have already been working on your exegetical paper. So now you have everything that you need, and I would spend the rest of your time getting that done. So we have three more lectures, and if you need, need a little bit more time, especially those of you that have other classes that you're working on that are demanding as well. If you're, I think some of you are taking Greek, and that's very demanding, and you're getting into harder stuff. So uh, if you need more time, that's fine as well. I'll, I'll work with you. We'll, uh, we'll end the lectures on time, but uh, you can turn in your stuff a little bit later if need be. So, let's get back to hermeneutics. And again, we've been talking about the science and art of interpretation. This is the science part, or the principles part. And another reminder, biblical hermeneutics has these two areas. We spend some time at the beginning of the course laying out these general principles after I gave you an introduction to hermeneutics in general. And we said that we were going to postpone this portion, special hermeneutics. And uh, now we're going to take up special hermeneutics. Another thing that we're going to deal with, I just gave you an abbreviated history of the development of hermeneutics. So we'll start with it. And I also mentioned that we will look at different approaches. And there's a few that we'll concentrate on, and some of them have uh, variations of them. And I want you to have a background of them so that you can identify them when you encounter them, and you'll, you'll see that they're very common in the world in which we live in. In fact, uh, who was it? Uh, which one of you read that hermeneutical text the uh, by Tan? Well, that, was the, that was the interpretation of prophecy. Yeah. Yeah, you did a good job on that. But uh, you kind of touched on, particularly, you're going to see in prophecy, people depart from the literal approach. And 
I want to kind of go over some of that so that you can identify when people are spiritualizing or departing from a non-literal approach. So we'll talk about that as well. And that will fill up our next three sessions, our last three sessions. And then the last several weeks, we took a break from the general principles to look at the exegetical process. And that's where we've been. And we won't get into exposition, but that gives you the total package there. And we'll begin by looking at special hermeneutics. And let me just briefly introduce you to these, and we can leave even a little early today. I want to look at narrative material, spend a considerable amount of time looking at it, giving you what are the characteristics of it, and what are the books that are primarily narrative, and why why does God utilize narrative? In other words, what is some of the main purposes for it? What does it try to accomplish? What are its unique features that make it different from other areas? And why do you suppose we begin with narrative? Anyone suggest anything? Genesis. Um, yeah, I guess you could say the Book of Beginnings begins in a narrative, literary form. More straightforward, historical. Yeah. Uh, two reasons. One, kind of along the lines of what you're saying, uh, the, the Bible, you can view the whole Bible as a meta-narrative. In other words... It's a complete story itself and contained within that broad outline, you might say, of a picture of world history from eternity to eternity. You can view the Bible as a meta-narrative. So you want to start with narrative. But another real practical reason is because the majority or the, the most common not the majority, but the most common literary form of all of Scripture is narrative. About 40% of the Old Testament is narrative, and about the same percentage of the New Testament is narrative, the four Gospels and the Book of Acts. So a very large proportion of all of Scripture is narrative. What is the the second most common literary form? Does anybody have an idea of what that might be? Prophecy. Nope, not prophecy, but uh, there is a large uh, amount of prophecy. Poetic. Oh, poetic. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is a lot of prophetic books are written poetically. So they're both. Like much of Isaiah is poetry, is poetic, but it's prophetic. So a large portion of prophetic material uses the poetic literary form to convey the prophetic aspects of the book. So the second most prominent literary form is poetry, and that's very, very different as its own characteristics 
different from narrative, different from all of the other literary form. Now, when we talk about poetry, I'm going to introduce you to Hebrew poetry, which has its own unique characteristics, different from American poetry or European or uh, Greek poetry. It has its own distinct characteristic that is um, what we want to observe when we look at poetry. So we'll talk about poetry. A subset of poetry, not because of the amount of passages that are wisdom literature, but it's a subset. That's why I'm going to look at it second, because it flows from poetry. So kind of combining wisdom literature and poetic literature, poetry, we'll, we'll look at that subset called wisdom literature. And again, we have a Hebrew wisdom literature, which is unique as well which has its own characteristics. So we want to take a look at wisdom literature. And then, as you mentioned, uh, prophetic material is very, very common as well, more common in the Old Testament, but also we have a an entire book of the New Testament, Book of Revelation, that is prophetic. And then we have prophetic passages within the New Testament as well. One of the major discourses of Jesus Christ is a prophetic discourse, the Olivet Discourse. And we have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You could even include Daniel. And then we have the 12 minor prophets. So lots of po- uh, prophetic material. That in the Old Testament, and some, uh, some in the book of Revelation is poetic as well. is used, utilizes poetry. So, prophetic material, and very important, well, not so important, uh, a subset of prophetic material is typology. So, we'll talk about biblical types. That's a subset of prophetic material. It's a form of prophecy. And very important, in the New Testament, we have epistolary literature. And we need to keep in mind what its unique features are because most of you will not only spend most of your time studying the epistles, but most of your ministry will involve uh, epistolary literature. And you want to see the characteristics of epistolary literature. So we'll spend a good amount of time dealing with epistles. So important, but we have, particularly in the life of Christ, we have parabolic literature or parables. But not only Jesus, but we'll find that there are parables in the Old Testament as well. So it's a literary form that has a long history. We'll spend some time, because this is a difficult area in hermeneutics, this is not a literary form, but I include it in special hermeneutics. We'll look at the New Testament use of the Old Testament. There are some very difficult hermeneutical issues involved there that we need to kind of at least give you an introduction to them. You could even... um, Take a whole course on the New Testament use of Old Testament. There's enough material to deal with that. Or uh, there's another 
Schaefer course, uh, the advanced hermeneutics course, where you spend more time looking into that. But at least we'll get a little bit of an introduction to that whole area, so you know kind of what some of the major issues are. And um, if we have time, we'll look at legal material, and you could include an other category here. There's other literary form, apocalyptic literature, for example. And the other, I would include legal material. We'll probably have time, but I'd like to touch on it as well. And that'll get us to the end of the course. So that's what we will be doing the next three weeks. Dane, do you want to close for us today? Sure. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time studying uh, exegesis. We ask for your hand in our exercise of this, uh, these principles. We ask that you um, guide us with the Holy Spirit, that we're able to honestly and accurately handle your word, to share it with our families, our churches, and the world, and also that we not neglect to apply it to ourselves as well. We ask for your blessing moving forward, going to special hermeneutics. We ask for your uh, guidance with the Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good week, y'all. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Yep. You. Good night, everybody. Good night.